This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Good to practice with you this morning. <clears throat> so, during the chanting service just a minute ago, the last chant that we did with the Mokugyo um, was the Shosanyo Dharani, which is a traditional uh, Buddhist chant that actually predates the Buddha uh, going back to the Vedic traditions of India. And this Dharani, a Dharani is a kind of a, a longer mantra, and it's we don't translate it because it cannot be translated. It, the power is in its sound, but that Dharani is um, uh, mysteriously attributed to um, a laying disaster. So it's often part of healing chant services where um, traditionally somebody would have a chanting service for um, uh, somebody that's sick or um, or uh, like what's happening now with the hurricane. So many people right in right now are deeply suffering. Right now, deeply, deeply suffering. Um, so just to keep them in mind this morning. This hurricane has come, has is is such a powerful image for practice and our Zen training. Um, so many people come to practice out of their own personal hurricanes, their own personal storms. Not literally, of course, but the the internal, the internal storms that holds sway over us. The truth is we rarely know when those storms will come. And even when we do, we're often ill-prepared and, and really um, well, caught off guard, but ill-prepared and ill-equipped to handle these these. Uh, things that happen to us in our daily life. And so a key part of practice is developing our ability to weather those storms with some degree of resilience, some degree of uh, flexibility, to be able to learn to flow with circumstances Without, you know, the normal way that we, if you look at your experience carefully, you'll see that when something unexpected happens, when a disaster strikes, so to speak, we often revert to these pole opposite ways of reacting, right? We either get into this sort of panicky kind of energy on the one hand, 
on the one side and on the other side this kind of shutting down, right? This shutting down the system, denial or whatever it might be. Extreme opposites. So as I was listening to and keeping up with the updates about the storm, it really became clear how much our media incites those mind states, doesn't it? The the language that's used, the storm of a lifetime, right? This, you know, it's going to be catastrophic, uh, apocalyptic. I heard, uh, but you know, it's good to notice our internal reactions to that kind of language, and it's no wonder that people, when they hear things like that, go to these extremes. Either sort of getting into that panicky energy or blowing off the warnings, you know. Ah, it's not going to be anything. Both are extremes. Both are these internal reactions rather than responses. We, we really make a distinction in Zen between reaction and response. And it's a language thing, of course, but reaction is that habitual takes us that habitual response that takes us by surprise and responding is is conscious it, not conscious in 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 the turn in, in the way of being self-conscious but steadfast um, there's a, a well-known economist and philosopher um, named Nassim Taleb. And he speaks about finding the way between these extremes. And he he sort of characterizes two extremes. One is called fragility. And the other is robustness. And these extremes that he talks about, this middle way between these, as finding a way to deal with uncertainty in life, difficulty. Fragility, of course, is when we're unable to withstand those storms that hit us. Or when any system, in his thinking, he's an economist, so any any system is unable to withstand the... Um, the, the the shocks that hit it, and then the other side is the um, the robustness, which is strong. Robustness is strong, but it lacks flexibility. And so Taleb argues that every system, if it's to thrive, needs to become what he calls anti-fragile. So neither fragile nor robust, but anti-fragile. His own term. I'd like to share a passage with you what he wrote. It's a great book. He actually has a whole book on uh, on this topic, and it's called Anti-Fragile. Just a a minute of background. It came out of his, for people that don't know, it came out of his work on his last book called The Black Swan, I believe. And a black swan is an event that happens um, that takes us by surprise. You know, something we can't predict. And he was apparently one of the few people that foresaw the, uh, the crash in, what, 2008, was it? The housing, uh, crash. Uh, and he began to think about what is it that 
causes these uh, that that causes our systems to react so poorly to black swan events. So he writes about being anti-fragile. He says some things benefit from shocks. They thrive and grow when exposed to volatility, randomness, disorder, and stressors, and love, adventure, risk, and uncertainty. Anti-fragility is beyond resilience or robustness. The resilient resists shocks and stays the same. The anti-fragile gets better. This property is behind everything that has changed with time. Evolution, culture, revolution, technological innovation, cultural and economic success, good recipes, the rise of cities, legal systems, equatorial forests, and bacterial resistance, even our own existence as a species on this planet. Anti-fragility has a single, singular property of allowing us to deal with the unknown, to do things without understanding them, and to do them well. Let me be more aggressive. We are largely better at doing than we are at thinking, thanks to anti-fragility. Think of your own the evolution of human beings. We're better at doing than thinking, thanks to anti-fragility. I'd rather, he says, I'd rather be dumb and anti-fragile than extremely smart and fragile anytime. You'll, you'll, if, you, if you read some of what, he's, what he writes, he often uses um, two kind of imaginary characters. One is, he nicknames Harvard, and then that, the other one he nicknames uh, Fat Tony. <laughs> and, and he says that what we need to do is find a balance between these two, you know, being Harvard and Fat Tony. Most of us have too much Harvard in us and not enough Fat Tony, you know, who is, has the street smarts, the ability to respond. Please don't take this to be anti-intellectual. <laughs> but on some levels, most of us come to practice because we recognize our own fragility. An inability to absorb those shocks of life. Some of us get that um, when we, more and more, as we begin to take on a meditation practice, we begin to notice how much we get shaken in certain situations. Like in conflict. When we're in conflict with somebody, and then we begin to notice how that shakes us. All the strategies we use to avoid it. Or, you know, um, how we shut down in some situations. Um, social situations, perhaps. Or um, when we're called to, called upon to, to do a certain task, how we tell ourselves, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. So in one way or another, we begin to notice how fragile we actually think we are. Um, and, and, and that brings us to practice. And so this, this Zen practice it is about 
anti-fragility, about uh, building our capacity to not only, as he says, not only to be resilient, but to grow from adversity, to put ourselves into situations that promote that growth. A storm like this one that hit us really shows us how fragile our systems are. You know, the, the electricity grid, just being at the center here, right? Thankfully, it hasn't gone off yet, but um, has anybody been in a blackout this storm? Yeah? And I was kind of absurd. Like we had almost no wind and no rain. Yeah. So you watched yeah. the TV last night and just went, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's totally fine. Yeah. It seemed like no reason. Yeah, we, we, our electrical grid is so fragile. Yeah. It's so fragile. Our grocery stores, so fragile. Right? Do you know how, you know, they, it's like just a couple of days of supplies and then, you know, if they make a run, if people make a run on the grocery store, that's it. You know, our food chain is so fragile. <coughs> our dependence on the internet, mm-hmm. so fragile. And so when a storm, um, um, passes, when it passes, what do we do? Do we, do we make the changes that need to be done, or do we simply go back to the status quo? Right? How many of us really do that? We, we, in our meditation practice, we have to realize that this is a crucial part. Not to wait to practice. Not to wait until things get bad in our lives to practice. Many people do this. and Many people uh, put off sitting until something goes wrong and then all of a sudden they hit the mat. You know, meaning this. Not somebody named it. Uh, um, but they, but they hit the mat going, okay, now, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling, I'm, fe- I'm in this storm and now I need to sit. Now I need to, but that's the wrong time to do it because we're not, we're, our systems are not, are, they're too fragile. They're too fragile. I was watching the news, um, and they were interviewing um, a couple who had just built a house on the beach on the coast of North Carolina uh, when the storm was coming in, and they were boarding up the windows. And the the um, the wife actually was being interviewed and had a, a pretty good attitude. I, I thought she said she said she said you know um, that that of course this was their dream house, but it was just a house and. She begged people to heed the warning to get going, to leave. Uh, she said something like, we can rebuild houses, but we can't rebuild people. And, and that's, of course, true. But I wonder how many of us have really have that perspective. How attached are we to things? The way, the, not just our things, but the way we've arranged the pieces of our life that the way we like them, think think about your own situation, and how um, 
much energy we go into maintaining that. And so I wonder how we will do when those things get taken away, or at least when, when that, when, uh, to use a metaphor, to when that ocean laps up against those, those things, the, the sea of change. One of my teachers used to remind me um, that the more we have, the more we have to worry about. Right? And perhaps it takes going through storms to really hone in on what's important in our life. Somebody I know, not in this sangha, um, is dealing with this. He's confronting his home office. I think I mentioned this before. He's, after his retirement, he's, he's confronting the piles and piles of things that, um, boxes and boxes of things that has accumulated. And what he's uncovering is how many things he's never gotten to. How many things he's accumulated with the idea that this change my life. This, if I can just get these pieces arranged, you know, uh, then uh, it'll really bring me happiness. And he's having a really hard time getting rid of this stuff, really clearing it out. Uh, It's almost like a paralyzing process for him. What is worth keeping and what is worth leaving? We are whittling in this practice, whittling away the the unnecessary baggage that take our attention, the the things that are trivial. And it takes a certain perspective, a certain degree of practice to really recognize what is most essential. Anyone who has gone backpacking knows this, how quickly, for example, how quickly um, things become unimportant when you have to carry them for mile after mile in a backpack. A a man named uh, Richard Byrd was an admiral um, American admiral who lived, I think he was born in the late 19th century and lived uh, through the, the mid, up into the mid 20th century, I believe. But he was a explorer and spent a lot of time in the Arctic and Antarctic. And um, he was stationed at a meteorological meteorological uh, station for in the Antarctic for about five months, and out of that experience, he said, "He said half of the confusion in the world comes from not knowing how little we need. Half the confusion in the world comes from not knowing how little we need." We can get confused about what we need, what to pay attention to. 
how to best use our time, who to spend time with, how long to hold on to a grudge, when to argue a point, and when to let go. The point of Zazen is to reorient ourselves back to what is essential. Master Joshu, who is, for those working on the Koan Mu, are becoming perhaps maybe more intimate with Joshu. But Joshu said, I use the 24 hours, you are used by the 24 hours. Are you used by the 24 hours? Another very famous character from the annals of Zen in China was a layman. He wasn't a monk, he was a layman. And he's known as Layman Pong. And his whole family practiced his... his uh, a uh, wife practiced and was very advanced in her practice, and his daughter. They were a, f- a family of Zen people, and apparently um, he didn't have much in terms of material wealth, but what he had, he took and put onto a boat and took to the middle of the river and then sank it. Please don't do that. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't want any calls from angry, you know, angry spouses and things, saying that they're you're now destitute. <clears throat> some people, some of us, see through the seduction of material wealth, making us less fragile. But then, of course, there is the the uh, the attachment not to material goods, but to belief, to our assumptions, to our opinions about the way things should be. Even practices we can get attached to. Zen practice can become an attachment. It really can. Beliefs can be just as cumbersome as material possessions. I've mentioned the story in Teisho before. Um, Maybe it's worth saying again. Uh, I don't know where it comes from, but I've heard it several times over the years from a couple of my teachers, so the details may be a little wrong. But apparently there was a dialogue in Japan many years ago, kind of an interfaith type of symposium, and they had various uh, people of the cloth up there um, as the participants, and they were fielding questions from the audience, or maybe it was from a moderator, And one of the questions was, what would happen tomorrow if you found out that your book of faith was a fraud? What would happen? And one person responded, it would be devastating. I would lose my faith because the book is the word of God. The Zen monk said it wouldn't matter at all wouldn't matter at all. Because Zen is about experience, hopefully. Not about our ideas about experience. So beliefs. Now, the thing is, we all operate on beliefs to one extent or another. It's Beliefs have their place, but... How attached are we to them? 
as we practice more and more, we become less dependent on beliefs, hopefully, and more and more our own compass. More, less and less dependent on the confirmation of others, and more and more our own guide. So as Bodhidharma says in the Zen school, he says, not dependent on words or letters, not be having, you know, our circumstances be just right, not fragile. Or as it says in the Prajnaparamita that we chanted this morning, holding to nothing whatever, but dwelling in Prajna wisdom, holding to nothing whatever. One thing that I want to urge you to practice with is not judging your own practice. Not judging whether your meditation practice is good or bad. Like, you often hear this, I had a good sitting, or I had a bad sitting. I couldn't concentrate today. Sometimes people will say, you know, I was really there. I was really in the zone. I was one with my practice. I was so lost in my practice. It was wonderful. I, 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 you know. Oh, yeah? <laughs> you may have been there, but, you know, there's, it may have been nice, but, the, you know, there's a whole lot of I in those statements. Fragile. That's all fragile. It's not enough to try and judge I mean, it is, it's too much to try to judge our practice, actually. It's too much to judge our practice. Doesn't mean we don't make an effort. But if we make, but if we make the effort with the idea of gaining, or, here's the other thing, or sustaining a state of mind, this is where we go wrong with practice. Because, Here's why. This is why this is important. This is why how it relates to being anti-fragile. Because when we pursue these ideas of this was good in my practice and this wasn't good, we're trying to stabilize and stay with something and, and saying, okay, that's where I want to get back to. We know that those states will disappear. Everything evaporates. And then we suffer. That's when we suffer. Practice needs to be adaptive. In the Zendo, we basically learn two things. The first thing is to sit still while the storms come and go. Like sitting with the pain, with the distraction, with the confusion, all of the the boredom. To sit with all of those mind states without moving without giving way. But the second thing is that we learn to adapt to change as it happens. We notice the landscape of the mind and notice how it constantly changes. Um, No doubt people here are familiar with um, Rumi, the poet, the Sufi poet Rumi. And this is a very common, commonly recited poem 
but I thought it was good to recite. I haven't recited it here in the Zendo before. It's called The Guest House. People familiar with that? Yeah. Isn't it a beautiful poem? This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. This this poem is a reminder that practice, our Zen practice, is not to shield ourselves. It's not to try to create a defense, defensive wall. I think of the image of the eye of the storm. As we develop in our practice, we learn to remain centered in the eye. The storms continue to go. They swirl around. We are a part of it. We're not separate from it. And at the same time, we're not thrown around. I think the best way we learn this in our Zen tradition is through the practice of Sushin. For people that don't know, Sushin is our retreat practice. Although retreat is the most horrible word for Sushin. Um, A, because people often will read this on the website, you know, come to a retreat and they'll show up at the door with their journal and their um, camera and, you know, books and all kinds of things and expect to have this wonderful, beautiful, you know, uh, relaxing time. (laughs) Um, I think it's relaxing and beautiful, but oftentimes when we we begin practice, Sushin can be very difficult because it's an intensive period of meditation practice. So we're not retreating. We're not retreating from anything. Sashins actually have the power to stir up the mind. Um, And this is one thing that newer people don't anticipate when they come to Sashin is how powerful they can get stirred up, how quickly they can get stirred up. Zen practice, when we sit, it allows the upper layers of the mind to quiet. And all the ways we've been pushing aside the other things, the things that we haven't dealt with, then can come to the surface. And so Sushin's, I was thinking, are like the warm waters of the Atlantic. You know, giving power to these storms. They're a perfect reading ground for storms. And we think, in our tradition, we actually think this is a good thing. Because we're here to kind of take the lid off of our stuff, to see what's in there, not to try to contain it. And so when mind states like anger or jealousy or 
discouragement or disagreement arises, when they arise in our practice, sadness or anxiety, we learn to sit in the middle of them without discharging them, without getting rid of them. And what do we learn from that? We learn to see that these things dissipate all by themselves. Just like, I'm sure, this storm <laughs> that's stuck, right? It feels like it's going to be here forever, doesn't it? Just kind of whirling around. But it won't. It won't. So, in practice we learn that things will just blow by. They'll, they'll dissipate. but only if we remain with it. Okay. So that's how we develop anti-fragility in practice. Does anybody have, would love to hear, how do you develop anti-fragility in your life? We have a few minutes. Uh, anything that comes up for people around this topic, would love to hear. Or maybe nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.